Well, good morning, everyone. We're glad that you're here. Today, we're going to take our final look at the book of Esther, and I hope that you've had time to perhaps read through uh, the book. It only takes about 20 minutes, even if you're a slow reader, to read through the book of uh, Esther. Uh, it's, it is a, a unique piece of literature, not only in the broader corpus of just written literature, but in the Bible, it is unique. It never mentions God. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of the supernatural. There's no mention of anything spiritual. In fact, the only thing that ties it to Scripture at all is the mention of Mordecai and Esther being Jewish, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and Haman the Agagite being a descendant of the nation of the Amalekites, which were uh, deadly enemies of Israel. And so um, uh, I invite you to open your bulletin. We had, what we did was uh, we printed a series of scriptures f- going through the book of Esther. And I'm not going to read them all. I'm only going to read uh, a couple. Plus, I also put in Genesis chapter 3. So this morning is going to be a little bit different than what we've done in the past. In that, what I, what I was hoping to do is help you see how the book of Esther, with no mention of God, with no supernatural, anything, nothing, there's almost nothing about, you, you, have, to, you have to imagine the author writing the whole book of Esther with a smile on his face because he puts a lot of humor, he leaves God out so that you will know that he's in and that you are being, every time there's one of these reversals or coincidences or something that it just jumps out at you, knowing that there is an invisible hand, a hand of providence that is behind all. So let's read, uh, uh, let's read first the verses here in uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you're cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live, and I will cause hostility, enmity, and hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. The next paragraph. There was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. Mordecai had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, were brought into the king's harem at the fortress of Susa. The third paragraph. King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha, Agagite, over all the nobles and made him the most powerful official in the empire. The king commanded all to bow before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. 
But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the empire of Xerxes. The next paragraph. Mordecai said to Esther, Do not think a moment because you're in the palace, that you'll escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows? Perhaps you were made queen just for such a time as this. Esther said, gather all the Jews in Susa And fast three days, night and day. Then, though it is against the law, I will go see the king. If I must die, I must die. Now skip the next one and go down to Esther 6.1 and read with me this. That night the king could not sleep. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. And in those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of the two eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this, the king asked. His attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so these narratives in the Bible, and there are a lot of them. In fact, I've told you many times, and and you really need to get this. This is so important. It's crucial to understand that when you have a Bible like this, and you, you just thumb through it, there's only a tiny section, maybe 20, 30 pages of this huge book that are laws and things for you to do. The vast majority of the book, almost all of it, is stories like this, histories, things that God has done through history. Sometimes they actually make a a, a moral judgment on things, and other times it doesn't say anything. Like in this story, there's there's no morality of right and wrong. Did Esther... You know, was she wrong to go into the harem and become queen? You know, what is, you know, was Mordecai right or wrong? You know, they do some good things, but they are not meant to be exemplars or people that you just follow uh, their lead. They're not examples necessarily. Now, there are other examples in the Bible. But here's the point. Let me, I'm going to read several quotes to you from one of the commentaries that I used by Karen Jobes. Uh, a wonderful female Old Testament theologian, top drawer, really, really good. Here's what she said. Reflection on the events described in Esther should make us open to the creative and unexpected ways that God works in and through us. We are called to walk by faith, not by sight. However, that faith is 
certainty in unseen realities lying behind what we do see. So she's, she is saying faith is not blind. Faith has an object. It's not just in nothing. Every one of us puts our faith in something. You came in this morning, you picked a chair, and you sat on that chair. You had faith that that chair would hold you up. You, I didn't see anyone this morning. Now, there are times when people have done this. They get on the floor and they crawl underneath and they look at the bolts and the nuts and the screws. and you know, That's not true. Okay, so it, we trust the chair and we sit on the chair without a second thought. Faith has an object. And the Bible says faith has an object. Never says that faith is blind. Let me go on. We are to live. This is, this is the key, I think, to a lot of Christianity. And if you get this, you drill it down into your heart, it can, it can transform the way you think, the way you act, the way you look at the world around you, especially when it doesn't seem like God's anywhere to be seen. He's just not around. Where is He? We are to live with the knowledge that both, listen, both our best moments and our worst are all part of what God is doing in and through us in the lives of others. We cannot see the end of the matter from the beginning or the middle. The story of Esther assures us that we don't have to. In other words, you're not going to understand all of the complexities of the universe. It's just not possible. And no matter how technologically advanced we get, or how brilliant we become, or how omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent Google becomes, it will never be able to sort out all of the complexities of this universe and of our own life. And Esther's bringing great comfort to us, saying you don't have to know everything. What you have to do is walk by faith, trusting, having an object. Even though he's never mentioned, I'm going to show you it is stark the way that the author built this book. So we're going to look at three things very quickly this morning. First, I want to give you, uh, it's going to be kind of like a, a, a theology class this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the narrative arc the narrative arc of all Scripture. And some of you have heard this many times from our theology class. Maybe you've never heard it. But there is a meta-narrative, a narrative arc that is the entire Bible. And it starts in Genesis chapter 3. You see, everything, here's Genesis chapter 3 in your Bible. I've showed you this before. It's on, it's on page 4 of my Bible. And here's the end of my Bible over here in Revelation. And let's see what kind of pages these guys put in here. Um, they put very thin and cheap paper in this Bible. Have you noticed that, that books are getting cheaper? Paper? 168. 1,269 pages. Page 4, Genesis 3. Everything else in your Bible was written because of what happened in Genesis 3. 
You are not allowed, nobody is allowed to take anything that's in the rest of your Bible and interpret that according to what you think it means. Everything in your Bible is tied to what happened in Genesis 3. It is the narrative arc that goes throughout Scripture and it is repeated and repeated. In theology, we call it recapitulation. These stories are recapitulating and recapitulating what we see in Genesis 3. And the crux of Genesis 3 is in verse 14 and 15. He's speaking to the serpent. This is the plot line of Scripture that runs throughout. It's like a river that runs throughout. When God is speaking to the serpent and telling the serpent, because you have brought this evil, and of course mankind participated, and so there's, there's also penalties that are, that are placed upon the man and the woman and creation. Because you've done this, you're more cursed. God didn't curse the earth. He doesn't curse people. He doesn't curse these things. But they suffer under the curse that the serpent introduces. And God says right there, here's the plot line of the Bible. There is going to be enmity, warfare, struggle. Have you ever asked yourself, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there such horrific evil in the world it's because of genesis 3 god genesis 1 and 2 says he created everything good and very good so something happened and all we have to do is look in our own hearts and we know it's there you cannot expunge the the corruption that is in our hearts what the old puritans called pollution we can't get rid of it on our own efforts. You can't just try to clean yourself up. It's not possible. You don't have enough currency to pay off the debt you owe. And you don't have the right kind of currency. You're trying to exchange money that is not able to be received in the bank of heaven. We don't have enough. We don't have the right currency. God tells us that here in Genesis 3, and he says, I will send a seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. In other words, put him to death. But in that crushing, his heel, and heel in the Bible is a metaphor for our humanity, his humanity will be struck. Now plug that in. That's the meta-narrative. You can't go forward and read anything else in your Bible except in the light of that. That's the plot line. Creation, what I've told you before, and you can jot this down somewhere, it's a great thing to remember. The plot line of Scripture, th there's many ways to say this. Here's the way I've said it in our theology class, and I think that it, it'll hold. Creation, chaos, recreation. Very simple to understand. Creation is in Genesis 1 and 2. Recreation, if you go look at it, is in Revelation 21 and 22. Those are the bookends of your Bible. Big picture, 30,000 feet. That's the bookends. Creation, recreation. In the middle, chaos. Now how does God effect the recreation? Through redemption the seed of the woman 
striking the serpent's head. That's how recreation is brought about. So when did recreation start? We just celebrated it. When did recreation start? Easter morning. Up from the grave, he arose. The stone moved. He stepped out. He didn't step out in a different body, by the way. He stepped out in the same body. One-to-one correspondence between that body that went in and that body that came out. Now, granted, it was different. It was glorified. It was no longer uh, subject to the vagaries of humanity and death. But he stepped out, and when he did, new creation started. And that's why the authors in the Old Testament or the New Testament say we're living in the last days, the days that are running up to the consummation, the recreation. And if you start thinking in this way, your whole Bible will take on a life and a vibrancy that is unbelievable instead of just making it so tiny and so tepid and so anemic that the last days are the 21st century and in America because we're the most important people that have ever lived. And our country is the most important country that ever was created. And the arrogance behind many of our, our, our contemporary teachers out there that say, this is the end, you know, any day now Jesus is coming. You know, he may not come for two million years. The reality is we don't know when he's going to come and we've been living in the last days since he stepped out of the grave. These are the last days. And we're going to see... We're going to see this chaotic but redemptive history be running throughout all the pages of our Bible and beyond. The book of Acts shows us that those creative and redemptive days continued. So Richard Pratt, who is my professor of Old Testament at RTS, said creation, chaos, and and recreation is kind of my idea. He said, inauguration of the kingdom, continuation of the kingdom, and consummation of the kingdom. God came, he inaugurated a kingdom in the Garden of Eden. He put Adam and Eve as his stewards over that kingdom and said, now take my kingdom and go into all the earth. Get out of the garden, make Eden a garden. Then get out of Eden and make Mesopotamia a garden. Then leave Mesopotamia and go make the rest of the world a garden. And of course it got short-circuited. But when Jesus came out of the grave, what did He tell His disciples? Go into all the world and teach the Gospel. Teach them what I say. Because we're to be agents of recreation. Doing good in everything we do. Not just church work, but everything. I listened to uh, Paige Brown last night do her kingdom talk. She is the best preacher in the PCA. You know, we don't ordain women in the PCA. And it's to our everlasting shame. Now, I may get disciplined for this because that's a big thing in our denomination. But don't you wish she could get ordained? Have you heard her? She's the best preacher in the PCA, and she's a woman. And she talked about the kingdom. If you have a chance, go listen to it online. It's amazing. All right, so... Uh, and by the way, I don't really mean that. I don't want to lose my job. I need this job, okay? 
inauguration, continuation, consummation. We live in the continuation. And that is the days of renewal, the days of conflict, the days of chaos, struggling with the serpent. His head has been crushed, but he's still twitchy. And he's still out there. And his only power, the only thing he can do is lie to us. He can't lift a grain of sand. He has no creative power, but he still has a mouth and he can lie. He's like Saruman in The Lord of the Rings. His staff has been broken, but he still has that voice that he can deceive people with. And so we're told not to listen. The Apostle Paul said, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against rulers, authorities, unseen powers of this dark world, evil spirits in heavenly places. They are the ones that are influencing leaders in this world and politicians and and bad people, bad actors everywhere around us. Sometimes they're our neighbors. Sometimes we're married to them. But whatever it is, There's something behind that. You see, they carry the image of God. Humans carry the image of God. And so he doesn't want us to hate people. He wants us to hate the deception that is controlling them. The lies. He even goes on to say, we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. We knock down strongholds. Listen where those strongholds are. Human reasoning. We destroy false arguments. We we rid the world of proud obstacles that keep people from knowing God. We, We cleanse the way. We pave the way so that they can receive the truth of God's Word. We help them capture rebellious thoughts, teach them to obey Christ. So that's the plot line. Well, how does Esther do this? And here's what I want to show you. And... If, if you listen, you will be able to open any Bible, any book of your Bible, any historical book, and you will be able to, do, you'll be able to follow this. It's so simple, it's so easy, and it's so refreshing because you can start to read your Bible the way it was meant to be read and understood by the original audience that was out there listening, wherever they were. And then you make the historical adjustments for, you know, centuries and millennia, and you come to our time. You see, you don't want to take the stories and just bring them right over into our day. This is where people really mess up the Bible. Just grab something out of the Old Testament and throw it up here in the 21st century. That's where we go wrong. That would mean that nothing the Bible has to say has anything to say to anybody but you. And you know the reality of it is, folks, nothing in the Bible was written to you and me. Everything in the Bible was written to somebody else. And we have the great privilege, it was God's purpose, to let all humanity come along later, overhear what He said to these people, then take what He said to these people, and then apply it to your life and your situation and your world. How brilliant is that? Otherwise, you have the Qur'an, which only fits in a medieval, cruel, oppressive context with no electricity. Do you see what I'm saying? 
When, when Captain Kirk finally is born, the Bible will still apply. If we took the Bible to Luke Skywalker, it would still apply. It will apply throughout time and space. Because it wasn't written to you. It was written to somebody else. And then you listen and you say, oh, I get it. This is how I am to understand my life. Now, can I get an amen for that out of you bunch of Presbyterians? That is good. That ought to thrill you. That your Bible is that relevant. And it's relevant to people anywhere, anytime, anyplace. It will always remain alive. Like a sharp sword and it will cut through any culture, any background, any problems. It will slice and dice and get down into our heart where we can experience real rebirth and transformation. Look, there's... I get so excited I can hardly stand it when I think about this. All right. How does Esther recapitulate? Listen quickly. The narrative arc in Esther is the same as Genesis. Here they're just living their lives. They're not bothering anybody. And Mordecai is doing good things. He rescues King Xerxes from an assassination plot. But the very next thing that happens, even though he does a good thing... The very next thing, chapter 3, you would think that Xerxes would have honored him and elevated Mordecai, but no, he goes and picks the enemy of the Jews, the ancient enemy of the Jews. Look at uh, a verse, a cha uh, uh, chapter 2. There was a Jewish man in Susa, Mordecai, and it gives his genealogy. This is very important. The author wanted you to know who this was. You see, if... If Mordecai had been from Fabens, Texas, this book would not have been relevant, right? It would just been a good story. But no, he's from, his family was from Jerusalem, and they're in Persia because of the exile. Now, all of a sudden, you've got a context that you've got to maintain. And that context is Mordecai is a Jew, Esther is a Jew, they represent God's people in exile when God is not speaking, when it looks like He's not around. They're way, way away from Jerusalem. No temple, no prophets, no kings, no nothing. Nothing. They're just out there. This is so, this is so relatable for how much of our lives is spent well, you know, there's not miracles every minute. I know people like to say that in Christian circles. Expect a miracle every minute. There's very few miracles by definition are rare. Most of us, if you're like me, you just live your life. You live the best you can. You just do what you can. You work. Sometimes you suffer. You have a bad diagnosis. Your marriage goes south. Your kids go off the rails. Uh, you get in a car accident. Uh, you know, a country collapses and this kind of thing. There's war and there's all that. You know, you're just living. There's a miracles everywhere. And, and getting a parking, lot, uh, parking space you pray for is not a miracle. A baby being born is not a miracle. It's not a miracle that Christ the King has the best two pastors in the United States of America. That's not a miracle. Although I like to think it is. 
A miracle is by definition something that is rare and extraordinary. Most of us live our lives mundane, normal, day by day, and we we call out to God, and what we need to know is that He's there. Every minute, every decision, every time that you lift a spoon with with a, a spoonful of Cheerios into your mouth, He is there, fully and completely there. And you don't need a miracle to eat your Cheerios. But how much better are the Cheerios knowing that He's there? Oh man, this is great stuff. He loves everything we do. Sin notwithstanding. Amen? Sin notwithstanding. But if you like to ride motorcycles like I did for years, He loves that. He loves rodeos. He loves chemistry. He loves orthopedic surgery, uh, Dr. Scully. He loves law, Mark. He loves law, like lawyers. Nobody else does. God loves you. Think about this. He loves school teachers. He loves therapists. He loves pastors, even though we're, we're pretty... You don't know. We are, we are sick people. To become a pastor, you've got to have your, all your screws are loose. Think about it. He loves all this stuff. He made it. Art and beauty and technology. Science. All of these things He made and gave to us so that we could enjoy them and spread the good to our world. It's invigorating and enlivening. Mordecai the Jew. Then you have Haman the Agagite who was a descendant of the nation of Amalekite. Now, why is this important? Here it is, real quick. In Exodus 17, Moses is bringing the children out. We know, I know he looks like Charlton Heston, but he, Moses is bringing the children of Israel out, and the first nation to confront them in Exodus 17 are the Amalekites. Moses charges Joshua to take the army and go out and fight the Amalekites, the nation of the Amalekites. And Joshua does. He goes out and he, he, he slaughters that army and he wins a victory. Moses, if you remember, he's up on a hill and he's holding his staff. As long as his staff's in the air, they're winning. And when he gets tired, he puts the staff down. They start to lose. And so he gets his brother Aaron and, and uh, her, the, uh, a descendant of Judah, and her and Aaron hold his arms up and they win the battle. And God said this, Uh, about the uh, warriors of Amalek. They attacked Israel and Moses commanded, go fight, I'll stand on the top of the hill. And then later in the book of Exodus, he says, one of these days, we're going to repay Amalek for what they did. And that day came hundreds of years later when Saul was made first king of Israel and God sent Samuel the prophet, this is in uh, 1 Samuel 15, God sent Samuel the prophet and he said, God has spoken and said, now's the time we are going to eliminate the nation of the Amalekites. We're going to kill them all and I want you to kill every 
living thing. And he uses a Hebrew word called harim. He wants to devote their lives to God. Now, this is a horrible thing. It only happened briefly in a few periods of history and never to be done again. But they wiped out everything. Camels, goats, cattle, everything was supposed to go. And Samuel was very specific. Leave nothing alive. And here's what happened. Saul, the son of Kish, look who he is. Saul, the son of Kish, a relative of Shimei, a Benjamite. Who's Mordecai? Who's Esther? That family. Same family. He went to settle the accounts with the opposing, those opposing Israel, the Amalekites, to completely destroy, to harim them, to devote them to God. Men, women, children, cattle, donkeys. Saul slaughtered the Amalekites, but he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Agag is a relative of Haman. He captures him and holds him alive. Who knows for what? Maybe for ransom. We don't know. And listen to this. He kept the best sheep, goats, and cattle and destroyed only the worthless and those of low quality. Here, God, I'm going to devote to you my junk. Well, it cost Samuel his life and his kingship. It was turned over to David. So Mordecai and Esther, same family. Listen to what uh, Dr. Job says about this. The Esther story is another episode in that ancient war between Israel and the Amalekites. And by every indication, it looks as if God's people will be destroyed. They have no king, no army, no prophet, no land, no temple, no priesthood, no sacrifices, no nothing. And yet, God acts through ordinary, mundane, what we would call coincidences. Amazing. All right, so that's the narrative arc. Quickly, the nature of faith. We're going to look at the nature of faith and then the invisible hand, and I'll try to do this in just the next few minutes. Faith, I told you some weeks ago, is not a force. Faith is not a force, and words are not the container of the force, and that you have faith, and faith is a muscle. That's a lie. Faith is not a muscle. So you don't build your faith by doing stuff. Okay, faith is, however, active and passive. It's active in that it lays hold of God's promises, and it's passive in that it rests in those promises. So what is the object of faith in the Bible? The object of faith is Jesus Christ, God Almighty, not your faith. You see, we're being taught by teachers in the in the West today, and in many other times in history, that we should have faith in our faith. How strong is your faith? It doesn't matter how strong your faith is. I can believe that this bottle of water, I can believe with all my heart and might and strength that this bottle of water will save me and give its life for me. And it's just a bottle of water. And you can spill it. Do you see how crazy this is? 
But you take the paltriest amount of faith. You don't have to have strong faith. You have to have faith that's in the right thing. Take your paltry and weak and and mixed up faith with doubt and all the confusion and all that and you put it on Jesus Christ and all of a sudden it's like a rock that not even the universe can move that rock. Just the weakest person, the weakest faith, they asked Jesus, increase our faith. And what did he say? If you have faith like a mustard seed, you'll move the mountains. What does he mean? He means you don't need lots of faith, you just need the right thing. Faith in me. And you'll say to this mountain, be removed and it'll be moved. Amazing. And Mordecai does this. Listen real quickly. Mordecai says to Esther, don't think for a moment because you're in the palace. You'll escape when everybody else is killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief will arise from some other place. What he's saying is, you have got to act. Faith Acts. It doesn't just sit back passively and say, oh, inshallah, whatever happens. God's will. No, it lays hold. It goes out. It risks its life if necessary. It pays. It, it struggles. It strives. Always with your eyes on Jesus. But it doesn't sit passively and say, oh, whatever happens, inshallah, whatever happens. God's will, God's will. You know, Christians are sometimes are... are are like uh, deists. We just, you know, whatever, fatalists. No. Faith in God will propel you into action. Who knows? Now here's the passive part. He says to her, May Yudea, who knows what God will do? He's admitting his humanity. He's not being fatalistic. He's just saying, who knows what he'll do? We don't know what he'll do. Let's trust him. Let's trust him and see what he does. Pretty cool. And whatever happens, Esther says, if I die, I die. It's okay. If I die, I die. The Apostle Paul said, if I die, I win. If I live a little longer, I win. Whether I live or whether I die, what? Say it. I win. We are victorious. It's not fatalism. It's not bumper sticker theology, let God and let go. Do any of you have that on your car? If you do, you have to pay a penalty to Christ the King. $500 penalty. There's a fine. And we have officers of the law here. We can enforce it. Don't get rid of that stuff. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the writer of Hebrews said. The evidence of things not seen. Faith has substance. The substance is those things we hope for. We hope for Jesus, not wishful thinking. We know He is our hope. It's objective. It's there in time and space. It's just out there a little in the future. But it's still real. If it, Jesus is not real, the Apostle Paul said, oh, our faith is, we're the most miserable people. And I would agree. If he's not alive today, what is it that we're hoping? No, he's alive. It's not fatalism. Listen again, Dr. Jobes. As God brings his ancient promises of salvation to fulfillment, 
in individuals' lives through history, we cannot, listen to this, we cannot at any moment know the significance of world events or even that of ordinary events in our private lives. The author of Esther calls us to trust in the power and presence of God. Listen, please. Even when and perhaps especially when he seems absent and we cannot imagine how he could possibly do what he has promised. Now, does that relate? Absolutely. He's present, especially when it doesn't look like it. See, oh, God has moved. God's abandoned me. God's backed away from me. Never. It's impossible. It would be impossible for him to back away from you any more than it was, any more than it would be for him to back away from his son. Why? Because he did back away from his son. The only human being that ever cried out to God for help and God said, no. Die on the cross. Die by yourself. Die with the sin of the world on you. Die with every friend you ever had betraying you. Die. Completely die. And go in the grave. And that, that is why He will never, ever back away from you on your worst day. The book of Esther says he comes nigh, he comes in close, and he, you could be shaking your fist in his face, and he just like a parent pushing that out, pushing that fist out of the way, and getting in and drawing you in. Are we crazy? Our Christianity is so anemic, folks. I wonder how it has survived. The reason it's survived is because there are people that actually stake their life on this like Esther did. And that brings us to the last point, and I do apologize for going so long. The invisible hand. So, you know, we, look, we looked at the narrative arc. There it is. We looked at what the nature of faith is. What is God calling you to do? To trust Him. And finally, the invisible hand. I told you a few weeks ago that the author, the, the uh, Hebrew literature, the Bible, and much of ancient Near East literature was written uh, so that when a person looked at the page and read the narrative, they, they were structured a certain way. And the one, the, in Esther, there's a chia, what we call a chiasm. So it starts with Mordecai uh, and the, and the, or the king giving a banquet. In the end of Esther, the king gives a banquet. And then there's a conflict, and the conflict is resolved. And then there's a center section, and there's a verse that falls dead center in the book of Esther. It's not the last line, it's the middle line. It's the climax of this grand chiasm that is all the verses of Esther. The authors, when they sat down and they had their, their quill pens and their tablets of clay or whatever they wrote them on, and they started writing, they were very proactive in how they laid out the literature, the rhymes, the, the humor, the irony, and they had a central verse, one verse, or a couple verses, that were at the center which tells you the meaning of the book. 
What is the meaning of the book of Esther? Is it Esther making her grand decision to sacrifice herself for the people? If I die, I die. Is it Mordecai challenging her? Is that the center? Is it what King Xerxes did or didn't do? Is it what Haman does or doesn't do? No. Here's what the authors, not secretly, there's no Gnosticism here. This is what they just put out. In fact, if you ha- today what you would see is Book of Esther and you would have a highlighter, yellow highlighter with this highlighted and next to it uh, 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 the author's note saying, uh, audience, this is the most important part right here. Here it is. 6-1. That night the king could not sleep. Insomnia is the center of this book. An invisible hand. He cannot sleep. It's begging you to ask the question, why can't he sleep? And we don't know. It doesn't say that he had indigestion. It doesn't say that he drank too much coffee. I mean, it doesn't say. But we know what it was. God would not let him sleep. And so scholars for centuries have looked at the book of Esther and said, this is, this is crazy. The book that does not speak about God makes God invisibly and hidden, His divine providence, all these really cool things about the hiddenness of God, the center of a book that never mentions His name. Unbelievable. Relatable. The Christian life, listen, is living confidently, peacefully, recognizing that God is always at work in your life. And that we're called, folks, this is the message of Esther, to trust Him, especially when He seems hidden or invisible or not present. You can live your life knowing it doesn't matter what you see. He is there closer than your breath. When you're suffering, closer than... When you're sinning, closer than you can imagine. In fact, how do you account for repentance if He's not right there? Are you that good? Look, folks, I'm a pastor. I love my sin. And my sins look a lot worse when somebody else is doing them. But when I'm doing them, they don't look so bad. I like them. I don't like them for long because I do repent too many times and too often. But how did I go from loving my sin to hating my sin? How do you get there? By dint of will because you're a good person? No, because Jesus became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Wow! Now that's a gospel worth dying for. Better yet, it's a gospel worth living for. Last quote. Most centrally in the narrative arc of all Scripture is the crucifixion of Jesus. When God appeared like He was 
absent, not present, when he was utterly silent, when there was no trace, when everything looked hopeless, and the Son of God is crying from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That at that very moment, when God was hidden and invisible and not present, our whole universe rests on that moment, on that reality, on that truth. Not a miracle, not legions of angels coming and rescuing. No! On the hiddenness of God, the invisibility of God. Most centrally is the crucifixion of Jesus. Israel's, listen, Israel's perfect warrior who with clean hands and a pure heart waged ultimate holy war, harim. How did he do it? He became the object. He absorbed all of that curse and wrath. why there's no more holy war. Because he took it in himself. He absorbed it. So that he could proclaim peace and goodwill to all men and women. On the cross, when he seemed most invisible, he was most present. Tim Keller uh, has this amazing thing that he put in his book uh, on preaching. And uh, I don't know. It was written for preachers, and I think, do you have that book? Do you have preaching? Yeah, I've got it. Uh, Tim Keller is probably one of the best preacher in the world right now, and uh, he's dying from uh, pancreatic cancer. He has terminal pancreatic cancer, and uh, he has this amazing thing he says, and you can look for it online if you want to. It's uh, called uh, the, uh, the True and Better. And he goes through all these people in the Old Testament and, and he compares them to Jesus. And so I looked for it and here's what he said about Esther. Esther was victorious at the risk of her life. Jesus is the true and better Esther who was victorious at the cost of his life. He went into the valley, not of the shadow of death, but in the valley of death. So that you and I, not that we wouldn't have to, but so we could. So we can, with no fear, go into the valley of death. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Uh, Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. And we are especially grateful today for this beautiful book of Esther, which we, uh, I don't know, me, I overlooked it my whole Christian life until now. And now I can't believe what I missed. And I pray, Father, that you would give each one of us hearts to trust you and to believe in Christ's name. Amen.